In Exodus 12, Exodus 12, if you're uh, in the, using the Bible in the pew, it's on page 58, if, uh, or click there, turn there, it's, if you go to the very beginning of the Bible, it's Genesis, the second book is Exodus, and then just 12 chapters in. We're in the middle of a series right now called Finding Jesus, and Jesus' story, his life is told in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels. We're actually looking at the Old Testament, and we're looking at how a lot of these different Old Testament stories, when you look at them and you think through what they're trying to communicate, that they point to the reality of Jesus. They let us know who he is and what he would be doing. He's in these stories. He's present. All the Old Testament, he was there for all the Old Testament, and the whole Old Testament is about him. And so, uh, when they showed me the artwork for the series, I, this is what came to mind. And so just thinking through the reality, but the, the truth is, is that this isn't conspiracy. This isn't something like, oh, where is... Jesus wants us to know who he is. Jesus wants us to find him. And all of the Old Testament was anticipating him, expecting him. And not a secret, not hidden, but let God be known and that he was coming and these stories so powerfully point to the reality of Jesus to come. And that's why we're looking at, not all of them, obviously, but some of them, key stories that point to the truth of who Jesus is and what he would be doing for us. And so, like I said, we started in Luke 24, talking about the fact that the old, whole Old Testament's about him and the whole thing points to him. Last week, we talked about the Old Testament covenants, um, that God is a promise-keeping God. That if God says he's going to do something, you can take it to the bank and with utter confidence know that he's going to keep his word. Um, we, we talked about how the covenants point to Jesus offering a better way and that he shows us how to live. This week, we're going to look at, at Exodus 12 at a little bit of a different story as we talk about Passover. Uh, before we get into that, let's pray together and then we'll look at this story. God, we just thank you so much just again for being able to be in your presence, for being here together. We thank you for the God that you are, that you're worthy of worship. God, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are worthy of more worship than we can give you. But we come before you with what we have and what we can to tell you as a church of our love for you, our adoration, of gratefulness for what you're doing in our lives and in this place. Uh, God, we know we have a lot of people who are traveling and people who are sick. I pray that you would uh, bless those with safe travels who are gone, heal those who are sick, God. I pray, God, as we go through this service, that you would uh, encourage us, that you would open up your word, that we can see this truth about who you are and who we are. I pray that you would bless us with your presence and awareness of who you are. Spirit, move in this place wherever we're listening. In your name we pray, amen. Now, the story in Exodus 12 is one that even if you're very, very unfamiliar with the Bible, you might have heard a little bit of this. But the thing about this story in Exodus 12, and really what I want to do is tell the story and then talk about how it points to Jesus. But really to understand the story of Exodus 12, we have to understand what led up to it and all of the pre-story, if you will. <clears throat> Excuse me. So like, like I said last week, we talked about Abraham, and we talked about the covenants and this ritual that he had Abraham do, where typically in covenants, both people would walk through these animals to signify signing the contract, but only God walked through them. Only he was committed to this reality, knowing that it doesn't matter what Abraham does, God is going to be faithful, God is going to be true to his word, God is going to keep this promise. We learned a lot. That's the beginning of Abraham, and the rest of Genesis tells us a ton about Abraham's family. 
He has a son named Isaac, and he has a son named Jacob. This is an actual family photo that I found um, from uh, olden times. They also had uh, Jacob, so Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. Again, actual family photo from, um, I had to kind of balance the one picture with the other, so there we go. Um, the, old, the 10 oldest of Jacob's sons get vengefully jealous of their dad's love for their younger brother, Joseph. I mean, talking about sibling rivalry, this is over the top. Some of you might think you have sibling issues. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. I guarantee your sibling issues aren't that bad. He was a slave in Egypt. God works through him and causes him to be made second in command of all of Egypt. The ultimate rags to riches story. He's in power. He's helping them navigate a famine that just destroys the landscape and challenges the entire country, helps them navigate that, and through that, Joseph is reunited with his family and who will all eventually move to Egypt. Things are going really well for Jacob's family, the Hebrews, the Israelites, all of them, but then a new pharaoh takes control in Egypt. It says in Exodus 1, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And so for all of the good that Genesis ends on, Exodus begins in a really difficult place. This one didn't care about Joseph, didn't know about Joseph. And anything he heard about it was indifferent, so what? He had a completely different opinion about Joseph and his family. In fact, he felt threatened by Israel. It says in verse 9, Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. The Egyptians, excuse me, the Israelites built for Pharaoh store cities, Fitham and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the how Exodus begins. This is where God's people are at. They're in slavery. They're oppressed. This is a really dark, dark time for Israel. Once they seem like, once Egypt was a haven for them, and now they're in bondage. Complete 180 as far as their experience. But God is a promise-keeping God, and he hasn't left them, and he's going to intervene. It says in Exodus chapter 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God reminds Israel that he, is, he has a covenant with them. And he reminds them that he's a promise-keeping God. I'm going to rescue you. Remember what we talked about last week. He's, if he says he's going to do it, He's going to do it. And he says he's going to rescue them. So the message comes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, I know some of you in here, when you think of Moses saying, let my people go, you're thinking of this movie. 
Some of you, when you hear Let My People Go, you're thinking of this movie. Either way, you're aging yourself. So uh, whatever that is. But the bottom line is God clearly, I'm glad, thank you for laughing at the dad joke. I appreciate it. Pharaoh wouldn't listen at all to Moses. He refuses to let them go. God tells Pharaoh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. By this, something is coming. And it's going to clearly communicate that God, the God of Israel, that Yahweh was real, and that he was to be taken seriously. And so God brings ten plagues against Egypt. Miraculous, natural occurrences, which were, as one commentator put it, unexpected and unbelievable. And so by the time we get to Exodus 12, where we're looking at today, nine of these plagues have already happened. The Nile River is completely turned to blood. Their main source of water and fishing and everything like that. Frogs have come covered the land. Gnats are everywhere. Lice. Flies are everywhere. Livestock is dying. People, uh, there's a boils outbreak. Hail comes upon the land. Locusts destroy all of their harvests. Darkness covers the land. All of Egypt is in chaos. All nine of these plagues just coming one after another, again, not like every hour, but over the course of a short period of time, all of these plagues are just coming to Egypt, and the entire land is in chaos. Everything is impacted by the plagues. Everyone's lives are upended. Imagine how the plagues would have brought their civilization, economy, everything almost to a halt. And it's in Exodus 11 and 12 that we find the account of the final plague, the 10th plague that was going to come. And God explains in Exodus 11 what's going to happen in the final plague. He says this, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be no great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. So God is very clear about what's going to happen and also why this has to happen. Pharaoh, Pharaoh can acknowledge, and also that God is very clear that this doesn't have to happen. Pharaoh can acknowledge Moses' words from God and let the people go, but he refuses to do that. He refuses to obey the Lord. And so within that, nine times over, He's refused to obey the Lord and acknowledge what the God is asking and let the people go. And so with every rejection, more consequences come until now this final one. This, is not, this does not have to happen like none of this has had to happen. But Pharaoh keeps rejecting God. This last plague, it's really important to see that this is coming to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. God, because why is that happening? Because God is just towards sin and those who do not acknowledge him. Egypt and Pharaoh have consistently denied him, but Israel has also, also, Israel has rejected the reality of God 
They, they're not innocent within all of this. In fact, their plight in Egypt right now goes all the way back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and that story. That story and their failure there has spread ripple effects that they're experiencing the consequences of Genesis 11 here in Egypt. And so death is a consequence of sin. This is what's happening. But it doesn't have to happen that way. This is coming but they don't have to experience it. And so in Exodus 12, the Israelites are given instructions and explanation for the first Passover. They're, expl- they're given an explanation of what's going to happen with the first Passover. And their preparations are given in details between Exodus 12, verses 3 and 11. They each are to take, uh, every family, everyone is to take a one-year-old lamb that has no blemish. So no sores, no wounds, no broken limbs, nothing like that. And so a a one-year-old lamb without blemish. And at dusk, when the sun sets, they're all going to kill these lambs. They would take the blood from the lamb and they'll put it on the two doorposts and over the lintel, over the top. And so there'll be blood covering all the sides of the door. They're to eat the lamb for dinner with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And they're to eat, the passage says, ready to go, basically. They're to have their belt fastened, sandals on, staff ready. This is not a sit down and enjoy a fine meal. This is fast food. Like, eat this, ready to leave, because we're about to go. And so they're, again, very clear instructions about this. And why do they do all of this? Why get the lamb? Why kill it in this fashion? Why put the blood over the door? Why eat this meal and eat this meal in this fashion? Well, God tells them, In verse 11, it is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. We're going to come back to that line. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so what God is telling them is that the Lord is going to pass through the land, and as he goes through the land, all of the firstborn are going to be killed, human and animal. In doing this, he's also going to execute judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. The blood on the door is the sign that when the Lord sees it, he's going to pass by that house. He will pass over the house, and the firstborn will be spared. They don't have to experience death. All they have to do is take God at his word and trust him that this is what's going to rescue them. That if they just do this, the death is going to pass them by. Justin Dilley says this, God spares Israel's son not because they are better than Egypt's sons, but because a spotless lamb dies in their place and its blood covers their door. But the reality also is in doing this, they're not only going to do this once, but God wants them to do this meal over and over again. God wants this to be a ritual to continue. The rite that will be practiced from here will be practiced from here on out as a testimony to the generations to come. It says in verse chapter 12, verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then in verse 26, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, 
It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. God wants them to remember. He saved them. He rescued them from the chaos, from the bondage, from the tyranny. By following and trusting him at his word, trusting what the lamb would do, they were rescued. The horrible night comes. As the angel of the Lord goes through the land, those under the blood are passed over and those without it are not. Pharaoh's own child dies. And that's Pharaoh's breaking point. He tells Moses to take his people and they can go. And the exodus begins. Now again, this is a, this is a horrible night. How in the world does a horrible night like this point to Jesus? There's a couple different ways that it does. First off, the, good, the first way that Passover points helps us find Jesus is that the good news of Jesus wins against everything that our culture offers. The good news of Jesus wins the victory and wins against everything that our culture offers. Now remember, this story that we're reading did not happen in America 2023, but in Egypt a couple thousand years B.C. And so different culture, different time. And in Egyptian culture, the gods were everything. It wasn't that we're worshiping a god and we look to him for provision and protection and wisdom and direction. They thought everything was a god. Literally. They believed that there was a god of the Nile, that there was a god of livestock, that the sun was a god, that their crops were a god. There was tons of god and everything was a god. So everything was something to worship. Everything was something to ask help from. Everything was something to appease. The gods were everywhere and the gods were everything. And so when the plague started, this is the part we might not get reading it through American eyes, 2023 eyes, that we have to look at what's happening in the culture at that time, that from their perspective, the people who first read this for the first time, what's happening in the story, when the plague started happening, the Egyptian gods didn't show up. The Egyptian gods didn't show up. Hapi, the god of the Nile, didn't stop the Nile from turning to blood. Amun-Re, the main god of Egypt, the god of the sun, didn't show up when things went to darkness. Every one of these plagues is a direct attack against one of their gods. If that god would have been real, if that god was true, if that god would have shown up, this plague shouldn't have happened. But the plague did happen. Each plague was an opportunity for the Egyptian god to show up, and they never showed up. They weren't there. Why? Because they weren't real. And they couldn't do what they claimed to do. That was the point. That's the point of the plagues. When you look at all nine plagues, statements like this are made throughout all of them. By this you will know that I am the Lord that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, that the Lord will make a distinction between Israel and Egypt's livestock, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, that you may know that I am the Lord. The plagues are a judgment call against their entire religious systems. The Egyptians needed to know that their gods weren't real, that they didn't do what they thought that they would do, that they weren't providing or protecting anything 
They needed to know that what they worshipped wasn't true. The God of Israel is the only God. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, majestic one. And no one else can compare with him because there is no one else but him. In our culture, there's different gods that are worshipped. There's different gods that are sought after. Not exactly gods, but they're treated like gods. The gods of money, pleasure, control, politics, sexuality, whatever that is. And we can say, well, that's not really a god. It's not like I worship that, but it's just an important part of my life. But the reality is, is that when something becomes our consuming focus, it's like a god in our life. When we feel like our life is shattering when we don't have it anymore, then that takes the place of a god in our hearts. None of those things that I mentioned are bad, that they're just not meant to be God, and they're not meant to be that important. They aren't meant to take the place of God in our lives. They, are an off, they all offer something, but none of them deliver what they, we think that they can. They say that they'll be there, but in truth, none of these things can show up. The things like of our culture are very much like the Wizard of Oz. All show and promise, but no truth and reality. He came off big and mighty and booming, echoing voice, but behind the curtain, he was just this pathetic guy. He made big promises with each of the travelers, things that they longed for, that they were desiring, but he ended up giving them just trinkets, disappointing souvenirs from just a junk shop. Jesus is offering us something counter to what our culture offers. He is inviting us into a kingdom, not a fairy tale. He is offering us real life, not a con man's pitch. And so we have to realize that what Jesus offers us is greater than anything that this culture can offer us. It says in 1 John, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 1 Peter 1 says, All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord endures forever. Again, none of the things that we have, that we seek after, that we work for, I mean, having work is not bad. Having stuff is not bad, but it's not meant to be our God. And I, I truly believe in all my heart that the pandemic that we experienced was not a plague from God smiting us. However, look what happened during it. Look what happened during it. People found out that things that they were holding on dearly truly couldn't fulfill them. That people, that, the things that they held on to, whether it was work or stuff or money or safety or security or whatever it is, when those things were taking, taken away, many people panicked and lost their hope because the thing that their hope was placed within, they realized that can't do what I've always thought it could do. But the people that follow and trusted Jesus, again, not that the pandemic was easy, but the studies show there was more of a sense of peace and hope and joy for those who followed Christ than those who didn't, simply because their hope was in him and not the things that the culture was offering that were lost. When everything bad happens, people turn to God. And what God is saying is, I want to be here for you all the time. I don't want to just be your security blanket. I want to be your life. I want to be the one that gives you purpose and meaning and joy. I want to give you what none of these other things can. And that's the truth. 
God gives us life, and nothing in this culture can give us life. You have to ask yourself, what are the false gods in your life? What are the things that our culture offers, whether it's financial security, whether it's job position, the size of your home, relationships, the newest gadget? Again, none of that's bad stuff, but it can't be God in your life. It can't be your identity. It can't define your purpose. It can't give you hope. All of that stuff will fail, just like the plagues show the truth that the Egyptian gods would fail. It's only Jesus that wins the victory and only Jesus that can give us what our hearts are truly longing for. And nothing in the culture can do that. The good news of Jesus wins against everything the culture offers. The second thing, as far as the Passover, that it points us to is that the sacrifice of Jesus is what rescues us. The sacrifice of Jesus is what rescues us. During this dreadful night, because of the blood shed by that innocent, unblemished lamb, the consequences of sin did not come upon that house, those covered by the blood. Those lambs died so that people covered by their blood could live. They were rescued because of what God did. The good news is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. The New Testament makes that really, really clear. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I don't know how it can make it any clearer than that. Jesus is our Passover lamb. It says in John 1, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is why we call Jesus' death good news. This is why we call the day that we celebrate his crucifixion Good Friday, because it was a bad day, just like the first Passover was a bad day. But because of his death, we experienced goodness on a bad day. We received life when death is what was coming. Death was coming to each house the night of Passover, because of the consequences of their choices, because of the consequences of Pharaoh's choices. Death was coming. But when death showed up, he realized, oh, death has already been here. The lamb died. And so the death of the angel of the Lord just passed right on by. The consequences of our sin is forever death. That reality is coming to all of us. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, when we trust in him as our Savior, then death has already been at our place. And the consequences will pass us over because he took those consequences on himself. When I was a teenager, I told my parents I was moving to the city because I didn't want to cut grass anymore. <laughs> and here I live in Chicago, and I'm not moving because I don't want to cut grass. There's a, lot of, there's a lot, a lot of other reasons, but that definitely is top five. Now, some people get really into mowing grass. Um, I have a friend who's, he's like one of those straight lines, you know, like they'll argue with the neighbor about the lawn. Really, really. And some people actually win awards for their lawns. They're called weirdos. No, um, I, say, I say that with the grace of the Lord. I'm just joking, just joking if anybody's in here. But seriously get into this. Like, put all out. Put the work in. Straight line. You can really see somebody, like, putting, like, the line out to make sure that they're all straight. Like, really, really get into it. Yard of the month. And for whatever reason, okay, that's great. It's a real thing. 
But this is how we can be with God. Where we do a lot of work, we put a lot of effort into things, and when God, when the judges come by and see the reality of our yard, like the judges come by and see what this person did, whoo, first place, you're the best yard in the neighborhood. We expect that when God comes by and sees our life and see who we are, that he sees different things as well. Oh, I'm, I'm trying really hard. I'm basically being a good person. My parents were religious. I've not messed up as bad as my neighbor. I'm better than him. And we point to these things. Look, I've won. Look, I'm good. I mean, how are you, with, how are you and God? Oh, I try. I'm not as bad as that guy. Or what's the thing we all say? It's not like I've killed anyone. But the reality is, is that God's not impressed with any of that. God's not looking for any of that. God's looking for one thing. Is Jesus here? Is Jesus here? And if Jesus is here, then you're good. The rest of that stuff, the way that we all responded to the idea of somebody super into their lawn, and some of you got kind of smirky, judgy about that. Like, and I said, weirdo, and you kind of agreed, right? God looks at our efforts kind of with the same thing. What are you trying to do? That's not impressive. That's kind of weird. That doesn't work. And you're still in the same place. Is Jesus here? Is Jesus in your life? Because when Jesus is here, that's what God is looking for. Have you believed in him? Is the blood of Jesus over you? Has he given you a new life? If not, you're still going to experience that eternal death. But with him, we have eternal hope. We have purpose. We have everything we were made to be. This is why scripture says in 1 John, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Our sins, that which causes that death, everything that caused, we deserve that death, he took that upon himself. He became the lamb in our place so that we could be made right with God. That's what the cross is all about. If you, what is the cross about? If anybody ever asks you that question, Jesus took my sins on him so that I could be right with God. That's what the cross is all about. He took my sins on him so that I could have his righteousness, so that I could come home to God. That's what, so Jesus could be in my life and I could receive the life I was made to have. It says in Romans 3, everyone has sinned. Every single person. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God, not when they try hard. People are made right with God, not when they do their best, not when they're better than their neighbor, not when they've basically tried really hard, not what their parents believe. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life for them, shedding his blood. That's what gives us life. Jesus rescued you and me from death. And we might not even realize that. 
But you need to realize it. You need to believe it. Because that's when you experience life. And he has that available for you today. The sacrifice of Jesus is what rescues us. And then the last thing. The hope of Jesus should be proclaimed to everyone. The hope of Jesus should be proclaimed to everyone. Just like the Passover, the, the, truth of the, re, the truth and the reality of Passover was to be proclaimed from generation to generation. Everyone, keep passing this on. Keep letting people know about this. Reminding people what, what happened on that day. We are not supposed to stop that message either. Now we get to speak of it in its fullest sense. Jesus has died for us. Jesus has died for humankind. Jesus rose from the dead, and because of him, we can have life. We need to be sharing that message. We need to share that message with others. We need to proclaim that to other people. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What that's telling us is that you and I are God's plan A and there's no plan B. He wants us to be the ones who tell people about him and show people what following him looks like. And so we are meant to tell the message of Jesus. It says in Romans 10, but how can they call on him to save, save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Who are you telling about Jesus? Who is the last person that you shared your story of finding Jesus with? That's a question we all have to ask. And that's something that even as we move toward Easter, that's one thing that we should be praying for. God, give me the opportunity to invite somebody to Easter. God, give me the opportunity to share my story of finding you with them. Be pray- Who is one person that you can be praying those prayers for? That you would get the chance to share and show Jesus with them. We need to share that truth with others in how we live, but not only that, but also in what we say. We also need to be sharing that good news with ourselves. We need to be reminding ourselves of the reality of Jesus. It says in Lamentations 3, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I love the first line of this passage. But this I call to mind. This I remind myself of. This I'm reminding. Because why? Because his mercies are new every morning. We typically forget every morning. We forget the truth that God loves us. We forget the truth that God has saved us. We forget the reality that we are his children and we have hope and we need to be reminded of that. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim it 
Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. Not only immemorial, but you need to remember. We need to remember, constantly remind ourselves of who we are. We are forgetful people. And whether it's because of the busyness of life or the, because of the overwhelming difficulty of life at times, we lose focus of what Jesus has done for us, that he is our hope, and we take our eyes off of him, and that's when things start getting hopeless. We need to continually remind ourselves, share with ourselves, proclaim to ourselves of who Jesus is. This last couple of days, uh, my family was in Atlanta, and um, we just had kind of a quick trip, and uh, Thursday night, we were walking through trying to find something to eat, and there was this big group of protesters in downtown Atlanta. We walked alongside, and like a huge, huge group, like 60, 70 people. And we were on the other side of the street, and we were walking by, and my 13-year-old son, Jackson, goes, they don't seem really into it. Like the way that they were kind of yelling and stuff, he goes, <laughs> he goes they kind of sound like their parents are making them do that. <laughs> and I, I just busted out laughing. I was like, well, how should they sound? He's like, I don't know, like they really care about what they're talking about. Man, when we talk about proclaiming Jesus, you see where I'm going with that? Do we actually sound like we care about it? Or, well, they told me at church I need to do this. Jesus is Lord. Or do our lives depict and proclaim the truth that we truly hold in our hearts. Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you realize what he's done for you? Then that should be coming out like you truly know him and you truly understand what he's done for you. And we need to remind ourselves of those realities as well. The hope of Jesus has to be proclaimed to everyone. Passover is a dark day but it was a good day as well. It was a horrible day, but on that horrible day, people were rescued. Good Friday is a bad day with a good, good message that a good God died in our place so that we could live. And Jesus is offering to that to you as well. We're going to receive communion as we end this message today.